The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. UF at University of Milwaukee, and uh, we're very excited to have him here. Uh, RUF is a campus ministry that has been tremendously impactful in my life at the University of Missouri. It has pretty much shaped who I am and my understanding of Scripture and the theology um, that, that I believe in and the centeredness on the gospel and the love for the word of God. Uh, Josh Brook, uh, a member here, goes to the University of Minnesota. He's involved with RUF there as well, and has just uh, shared with me how impactful it has been on his life to have mentors and to mentor others. And so we are so excited for RUF to be in the state of Wisconsin now at the University of Milwaukee. It is the campus ministry of our denomination. It has been spreading like wildfire because uh, we actually take seminary-trained, ordained men and put them on the campus, which is helpful when you're dealing with a uh, plurality of ideas circulating around to have someone who has trained to point you back to the Word of God and back to the gospel. And so we are so excited to have the Winslers here in Wisconsin. And so if you are a senior or you are a junior and you're looking ahead towards college, I would encourage you to um, to consider UW-Milwaukee simply because of the ministry down there because it is a, a valuable, valuable ministry. Along with that, we are also in the process of planting a church down by the campus. And so uh, God is doing a lot of really cool things down there. As for Mike and his wife, Laura, personally, Lauren, excuse me, uh, we, Trish and I have become really good friends with them. He and I get to meet up about twice a year and play Frisbee golf, and we get to meet other times as well. And uh, we really enjoy their friendship, and so we're excited to have him come and share with us this morning. So, Mike, thank you for coming and bringing God's word to us this morning, brother. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Good morning. As Dan said, it's a, a joy and a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Thank you for that introduction. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to John chapter 5. If you have the standard ESV, I think that's page 890. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of John chapter 5. We good? John 5, 1 through 16. Okay, here we go. This is the Lord's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
A man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the Sabbath today. We thank you that you are at work in many of our lives, all of our lives indeed, and some of us healing us in very real ways. We thank you for your word. May you make it alive to us now. May your spirit come and uh, prick our hearts, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear you and see you and love you, Jesus. We thank you for this time and pray this in your name. Amen. I'm not quite sure what my wife and I were thinking. Coming into this summer, uh, we thought it would be a good idea to take three back-to-back 10-day trips with a newborn. It just seemed like it'd be fun. You know, yeah, we're young, we're spontaneous. Let's go to North Carolina and Texas and Florida. And uh, It was exhausting, uh, very trying in many ways, and we will not repeat that next summer or any summer after that following. But nonetheless, on one particular flight, and all of them, William flew. Uh, many of actually, Lauren was by herself with William, and she did great. But one flight, I was along, and it started with a two-hour delay on that airport before we took off, right? I think there was traffic or weather or something like that. So we'd been sitting a long time before we actually took off. And then, pretty much from halfway through that two-hour delay, William started fussing, which turned into crying, which turned into screaming uh, the whole flight. You would have thought that he was sitting naked on a fire ant pile or something like that. I mean, he was was going crazy. It was was terrible. We were the, the foremost row behind first class too and so we were noticing all these first class people turning around and and at one point I thought I wasn't going to say this but Lauren I I I was holding him was like you know trying to rock him up there and Lauren is looking at this guy staring at her and she she said something which I was oh honey I mean like I won't repeat it here it wasn't swearing or anything but (laughs) Nonetheless, I mean, it pushed us to the extreme. In that moment, I can tell you, most assuredly, we felt pretty hopeless. Uh, as one of my friends told me, I just prayed, Lord, just please end this. Somehow, just end this. You know, I don't know what it would take. But we felt pretty hopeless. We had no friends who could like, help us. We couldn't pass him off to someone else on the airplane. And uh, it was just it was a very, very trying time, right? Now, in a much more intense In a much more severe, elevated way, we probably would see similarities with the man in John chapter 5. This man had no friends. He was certainly helpless and most definitely hopeless. And into his life steps and walks Jesus. This is what Jesus does. We see this over and over again. Jesus conquers brokenness and changes the lives of his people. In this passage, as we work through it this morning, we're going to see Jesus conquer brokenness in three ways. First, with radical compassion. You can see this in your, in your, in your bulletins. Secondly, with radical conflict. And lastly, with radical counsel. So if you are following along in the text, look with me again to verse 1 as we consider Jesus' radical compassion. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you, the the first three verses of this passage give us the context for the story, right? They kind of help set the stage a little bit. So, now this feast, there there were three 
feasts in the Old Testament that the Bible commanded all males to go to. We don't know which one uh, this was. It could have been Pentecost, Passover, or the Feast of Tabernacles. However, for our, our story here, it's really not important. Now, as a side note, something that is important. So there's this feast that every, every Jew male has to go to. And then what's the next phrase? And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is a, a simple point, but a profound one as we think of the life of Christ and what he did for us. He did everything that was necessary for our salvation. He did everything to obey God's law perfectly. He did everything for us that we could not do, and we needed him to do it. So that's just, just a little, little note to point out there, right? This is Jesus' obedience for us, his perfect obedience. Look at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, John's giving us a couple of more details here. I also want to say, you want to know something great? When the Bible talks about something historical, it's true. Because we trust that all of God's word is true. And even when it speaks to something in history, right? Now, for the longest time, 18th and 19th century critical scholars who studied the Bible, they would look for passages where they could try to disprove the Bible, right? Look for something, well, see, this never happened in history, so the Bible is not true. This was one of those passages for a long time that they came to. And they say, look, we've never found any kind of colonnade with five roofs. Well, to to what the Christian would say, yep, that makes sense. Uh, In the last century, an excavation in the northeast quarter of the city uncovered two pools lying north and south, surrounded by four covered colonnades and a rough trapezoid connected in the middle by a fifth colonnade. So what was once a passage used to disprove the Bible is now a passage that we can look to to say, yep, the Bible is true. It is God's word. Now, this pool that's called Bethesda, which means house of mercy, was probably called this because like many other um, mineral springs, people would gather there to be healed, right? Not too dissimilar to what we would expect to find today. Now, look at the last verse of the context, verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So in in this house of mercy, in this pool called Bethesda, was this crowd or community of people in dire need. You might actually kind of chuckle and say, that's really not that different than the church, the local church today, right? We are all needy people. Now, not in the same way that those people were, but nonetheless, we have many, many needs that we need to come to God with. Now, these people were physically damaged, many of them, and probably most certainly financially estranged as well. Now, again, I feel this is worth mentioning. I feel I have to mention this. What happened to verse 4? Yeah, you see that in your Bible? It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. I, I, I would love to just skip over this, but nonetheless, we should mention it. If you notice the footnote in your ESV, it'll, it'll say this. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, quote, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first or after the stirring of the water, was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, without getting too deep into what theologians call textual criticism, uh, basically the way we have the Bible today, the way our Bible appears, like in our nice, neatly bound codices, as we have them, as we call them, is because there are lots of ancient documents, right? Um, Parchment papers and all these different things from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, dating back very closely, actually, to the time of Jesus. And we compare these documents and come up with 
what we have as the Bible. And this is, this is a long conversation. This is actually really cool because this is how the Lord works in inspiration. He didn't give us the Bible on gold tablets of stone from heaven, right? He actually revealed it in normal historical channels. But so coming to this verse, why verse 4 is not in there, where that appears is in much later documents. As we're considering this, right, as, as scholars do, the older the document, the closer it is to the lifetime of Jesus, probably the more reliable it is. So the, our oldest and our best documents of the Bible don't have this verse. It was added hundreds of years later, most likely by a scribe who was trying to explain this healing, right? Kind of just put it in like wrote it in the margins or something like that. So if you have more questions on that, Pastor Dan would love to talk to you about textual criticism. It really is a fascinating area of study. Now John tells us particular details to our story in verses 5 through 7. Look with me. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another one steps down before me. Now, first, let's consider the man. And secondly, let's consider Jesus. First, this man, as we've already said, is in a miserable, depressing condition. He would be like an old, rusty car in a junkyard. Kind of helpless, never going to be restored in anyone's normal eyes, right? He had been suffering terribly for 38 years. 38 years. That is 11 years more than I am old, y'all. That is a long time. I, I, I can't even imagine 38 years. He was friendless. In all that time, he had no one to help him. No one, not even one time to help him step down in this pool to hopefully be healed, right? And very truly, he would have been rejected by the Jewish society because the leaders would have thought that God must be against this man for his physical, because of his physical condition, right? So no person with any kind of respect would even talk to him. That's the man's situation. Now consider Jesus, right? Jesus sees this man. He knows his situation, as the text tells us. And he calls to the man. Jesus, a stranger, does what no one else would do in 38 years of this man's life. He had a radical compassion on this broken man and changed his life. Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? Probably because, if I don't know if any of us here have suffered for 38 years. Maybe, maybe you have. But at that point, in such long, intense, severe, persistent suffering, you might begin to give up your hope to live or to want to be healed. So Jesus draws this out of the man, wants to have him openly confess his inability to save, to heal, to change his own life. And that's what he does. Now the man's answer here is misdirected, right? He says, you know, the, the pool, I have no one to help me in the pool. Jesus knows that the pool doesn't heal a person. It's he who heals a person. Now we see the peak of Jesus' compassion in verses uh, 8 through 9 and a half. Look with me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now if you've read through the Gospels in uh, the New Testament a good bit, maybe in the Gospel of Mark you would have noticed that this word immediately appears often. Right? Mark does this all the time. Immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and just keeps happening, right? 
Not so often in John. John, the author of John, does not use that word very, very much, but he does here. It's the word at once. This demonstrates something pretty profound. Jesus' healings are not gradual. They're instantaneous. They are full, complete, and most definitely miraculous. He didn't even need rehabilitation after 38 years of not walking. He got up and walked. That's the power, authority, and healing of Christ. I'll tell you a little story I've heard from my wife. I was not there personally. But when she was in college, she went to the University of Kansas, which Dan loves. And um, she was driving home on Interstate 80 uh, one f- for Christmas one year with her roommate, her best friend in the car, during a snowstorm at night. Not quite sure why she thought that was a good idea. But nonetheless, she was doing it, right? And uh, I think it was coming over a bridge, so the story goes, and next to a semi-truck, sort of those big kind of piles of snow in the road, and, and she spun, and she went down into the ditch, right? She said, to this day, she hates driving in the snow at all, even if she's not, understandably so, right? But uh, she didn't, you know, the car didn't flip or anything. No one was hurt, but it scared her. It scared her very bad, right? Now, at that point, a, a truck, like a passenger truck, pulled over and checked if she was okay. And they were like, yeah, we're fine. And she was way down in the shoulder, never going to get that Ultima out of the snow, you know, that she was in, right? But the truck was like, well, I can, I can try to help you out here, but there's this traffic going by. So then two semi-trucks saw what was going on, and they both stopped and blocked both lanes of traffic so this man in the truck could pull Lauren out, which he did, and then I think uh, followed behind her to the next exit where there was a hotel where she could get a hotel and spend the night, right? Well, so, so Lauren was, was helpless in that situation. There's no way she would have ever gotten, could ever get that car pretty much until the snow melted out of the ditch, right, on her own. She would need someone to come and, and to pull her out and to have compassion on her and, and gr- show her grace. And that's what she saw with the truck drivers and with the, the man in the truck who pulled her out. I, I have three points of application for us in this first point of text, and they'll be quick, don't worry. The first is be reminded of the gospel. Be reminded of the gospel. Consider the broken man in this, in this story, right? And the paralyzed man in the story. He's friendless, he's helpless, he's hopeless. He can do absolutely nothing to heal himself. He can't, he can't fix his lame legs. He, he's tried everything he could. He can do nothing to save himself. He needed someone to step into his life, to change his life, to heal him. That's what Jesus does, right? Spiritually, y'all, we are the same way. We despite our best efforts, could never on our own please God enough for, him, for, for us to be friends with him. We could never do it. He's perfect. He is the definition of moral purity, as we heard Chad talk, sing about and pray about this morning. Jesus did everything that was necessary for us. He came, he lived perfectly, as we already saw in verse 1, went to all the feasts for us, right? He loved God perfectly. He loved his neighbors perfectly. He did everything for us because we could not do it on our own. When we see this text, when we see this man who is so needy, and Jesus came to him, let us remember our own brokenness, our own neediness, and thank the Lord for that. Secondly, let your hearts be struck by the radical compassion of Jesus. How far he came, the perfect place that he was in heaven with the Father, how far down he came and entered into the brokenness of this, of this colonnade of Bethesda to come to this man, right? 
That's what he does to us. Can, let your hearts be struck by the radical compassion of Jesus. He knows what you're going through. He sees all things. Literally, no one else can help you like Jesus can. Come to him. And thirdly, hope for the new heavens and the new earth. Hope for that time, as we sang, when he is to come, when Jesus comes again, right? This healing, as we see here in John 5, it's amazing. It's a profound healing, right? It's instantaneous, no rehab. It really is miraculous, right? And, and this is encouraging to us, especially those of us here who maybe are suffering today. However, notice this. Jesus came to a crowd of broken people. He came to a multitude, a sea of physically, financially, emotionally broken people, and he healed one person. He didn't heal them all. What does that mean? Healings, physical healings for us, they do happen. The Lord does answer prayer and does work in those ways, even for us today, right? But we see this. We need to be encouraged and reminded of what is to come. Perfection is coming. Full physical healing is coming for all of us for all eternity when Jesus returns, right? Hope for the new heavens and the new earth. Brokenness is not conquered through radical compassion alone. When the sweetness of Jesus comes, so does radical conflict. Look with me to verses 9 and a half through 10. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, to, to take, for you to take up your bed. Now when we see this little comment, right, this little editing, this little editorial comment here that John uses, now that day was the Sabbath, and then moves on. That, that kind of functions like a tornado siren for us in the text, right? We know something, you didn't just, the Bible writers don't just include unnecessary facts for us in the Bible. This is a part of the story. We know trouble is coming here, right? And if you've been around church for a while, you know that the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day hated it when people worked on the Sabbath. They say, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, right? Okay, so what laws are they referring to? Are they referring to the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament, for example, Exodus 20, Jeremiah 17, these passages say things like, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath and bring it in through the gates. Okay, so maybe... But, in fact, the language bringing in through the gates implies traditional everyday work, everyday occupations, and that sort of customary employment. And, in fact, and some will disagree, but I believe that the Old Testament is against working in your regular jobs on the Sabbath. But that's not what this man was doing by carrying his mat, right? So it couldn't have been the Old Testament here. Well, how about their rabbinical traditions? They actually had 39 classes of work, okay? And this is, this is all their, their way of, inter, of interpreting and kind of evaluating and applying the Old Testament. They had 39 classes of work, including taking or carrying anything from one place to another. So by, by their definition of law, this man broke the law, right? He, it is not lawful for you to do this. He basically spilled coffee in the sanctuary. Y'all don't do it. All right, this carpet, you don't want to mess that up, okay? So that's what this man did. Now look at, uh, the, look at the man's response here in verses 11 through 13. And then the last verse of our passage, verse 16. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Now look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Just like in the very beginning, when Adam gets accused, he points to Eve. Eve points to the serpent. This man points to Jesus. I mean, I can just tell you right now, if you're in trouble for something, don't point at Jesus. That's not a good place to go. He didn't do it, okay? Um, But since this man didn't know who healed him, we know that he was not healed because of his faith. Elsewhere in the Bible, we do see that, right? In Mark chapter 5, with the bleeding woman, when she comes up and she touches the corner of Jesus' garment while he was walking, he turns around, he felt power go out of him, right? And he says, go in peace, eventually. He says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. That's not what happened here. This man didn't even know who, that it was Jesus who healed him, right? Jesus just at this point had healed him physically. Uh, why did Jesus withdraw? We're not entirely sure why he withdrew. He probably just withdrew from this man, from the scenario, so the Jewish leaders could determine the healing on its own, right, and not, have, not know that it was Jesus who did it. Uh, I, I should also point out, these Jewish leaders... They could care less about this man's healing. They could care less about it, right? This profound, miraculous, instantaneous healing, 38 years of suffering, could care less. They told the healed man, and Jesus, another thing to point out, he told the healed man to pick up his mat and walk. He didn't have to tell him to pick up his mat. He could have just healed him and said, get up, go, you're good to go. You don't need that mat anymore, right? But he told him to pick up his mat. And also... This man's illness, it wasn't life-threatening. He'd been suffering for 38 years. Jesus could have healed him any other day. It didn't have to be the Sabbath. So what, what, what was Jesus up to here? Why did he do this, right? Jesus intentionally incited conflict with the Jewish authorities. He knew their rules and what their response would be and had this man pick up his mat anyways. Why? You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had perverted the Sabbath They actually had perverted the law of God as well. Now, we as Christians, we know that the law of God, like by our own obedience, we cannot, cannot fulfill the law enough on our own to be a Christian, to be saved. We need Jesus to do that, right? We've already said that a couple of times. But nonetheless, we also see the law of God as a guide to our lives. We, we, We see it as a reflection of who God is, of his character, of his goodness. So we still come to law and want to keep it, right? But nonetheless, we should look at the, perf- the perfection of God's law and see our inability, see our neediness, see our, our dependency on Jesus to fulfill that for us, right? These Pharisees, they had blurred the goodness, the good news of Christianity, that Jesus has done everything for us. They had lost that. Jesus engaged them in conflict to redeem that to redeem the good news of the gospel, the good news that we are saved by grace through faith and not by our works. Sometimes you have to pursue radical conflict before resolution can, can come, can appear. Uh, there was a college student I was working with this last year at UW-Milwaukee. Uh, she was living with four other girls, four of the roommates, right, at the time. And one of the roommates, without asking or, or telling whatever, to any of the other roommates, just invited a guy friend of hers to come and live with them, right? So she just, he just showed up in their house one day, and she gave him a key, and 
Like she, my friend, a student came out of her room and she's like, who's this guy? Right. Like, what's he doing here? Uh, she's like, oh yeah, I told him to move in. It's no problem, right? Oh, there's a little bit of a problem there. Uh, so she was talking to me about this. This was a stressful thing. So I, I encouraged her, like, you have to talk to this other roommate. This is not okay that she was doing this, right? That she did this without, even in general at all, but secondly, without even asking you guys, right? Uh, so and the hard part of that is, right, we know that these confrontations can be difficult. They, to engage in them can be hard. Some of us hate it. Some of us really love it, and those are the weird people kind of the fun ones too, but most of us try to flee and run from, from conflict, right? But Jesus went towards it in this situation because what they were doing, blurring the good news of Christianity, was so important that he needed to do it, right? Y'all, here's the last quick point of application before we move on. It is life-changing to rest in the good news that we are saved by grace and not by our works. Now, the final way we see Jesus conquering brokenness in this passage is through radical counsel that he gives to this man. Look in verses 14 through 15. After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, it could have been later that hour. It could have been later that day or later that week. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. All it says is afterward, right? Now, this is amazing. There, were th- there have been thousands of people at this feast. Thousands of people in the temple, in the courtyard, just r- r- rummaging around, you know, socializing, that sort of thing. Jesus sought out this man again. Why? Remember, we said he only healed him physically. He hadn't changed him spiritually up to this point. He didn't even know it was Jesus who healed him, right? So Jesus pursues him, finds the man again, and says this to him. He says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, the, these two clauses, these two parts of the sentence in, sentence in the Greek are tied together. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Implication there, his sinning led to his disability, right? It's pretty crazy, but I have to say it. Now, does this mean that every time that we suffer in life, it's because we've sinned? No. Now, ultimately, we know because sin came in the world and the effects of the sin and that sort of thing, right? But specifically, our sin, does that mean that? Of course not. There are, however, examples in Scripture where that does happen. One would be our text right here. Another one would be in in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God, and God killed them. It's pretty intense. It's pretty intense church discipline right there. Don't do that. Um, Nonetheless, there also are cases in Scripture where we see this not to be the case, where someone is, has a disability and it's not because of their sin. Actually, an example of that would be four chapters later in John 9, when Jesus comes up with his disciples and, the, and his disciples say, is this man born in sin and that's why he is this way? Or, but because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, no, it's not because of anyone's sin. So the power of God could be revealed to you right now. And then Jesus healed him, right? So we see examples of, of both ways in Scripture. I also want to ask the question, what possibly could be worse than 38 years of isolation, of rejection, of loneliness, of suffering? What's worse, right, when Jesus says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you? What's worse than that? Hell. Hell would be be much, much worse than that. Someone once said, a sick place is a sorrowful, a sick bed is a sorrowful place, but hell is much worse. 
Now, one thing's for sure. Even though we are saved by grace, this is the good news of Christianity. We are saved completely by God's grace and love for us, right? Even though that's true, Jesus still cares how we live our lives. It still matters what we do with our lives, what we do, what we don't do, right? Jesus' radical counsel to this man, very simply, sin no more. This is Jesus' radical counsel, sin no more. I should mention, of course, the Bible does not teach that a true saved Christian never sins. If that, just to put us all at ease here, if that was what you think I'm saying, we would all have no hope. Certainly, I'd be the first one to go down, right? That is not, that is not what the Bible is saying at all here, what it, what it teaches. The Bible does teach, however, that Christians, that people who love Jesus, who walk with him, who follow him, it teaches that we, we should hate sin. We should see it for what it is, how ugly it is. We should see the effects that it has on our lives, the effects that it has with our, on our relationship with the Lord, on our relationships with other people. We should hate sin. We should fight it. We should flee from it with all that we can. Uh, four years ago about, I discovered that I have TMJD. Who knows what that is? A few of us, right? Temporomandibular joint dysfunction. It's the jawbone uh, when you open and close your jaw, if, if you have this, if it's not working properly, it'll, it'll click, it'll pop, it'll lock in place, that sort of thing. You get headaches, you get all, all that kind of stuff, right? So I had this, um, and I went to see a specialist, by God's grace, and she, she you know, took a mold and fitted me for this appliance that I, I put in my mouth and I wear, and it basically keeps my jaw from going all the way closed so that my ligaments and my can all heal, right? And once that heals, it should mostly hopefully stop the popping and get back to get back in place and that i can't say that has happened it's so much better not have that right but she when she gave me the device then to take home she also gave me the slip of paper with instructions wear 24 hours a day for the rest of your life i was like oh boy uh this is not gonna can you see me up here wearing my mouth guard um so after i stopped kind of freaking out a little bit now she told me uh, this is good for you, right? You, you want to wear this. The more you wear it, the more quickly you'll heal, the more strong your ligaments and your muscles will get, and you will be better off, right? Y'all, we are called to live perfect lives. Now, of course, we all know because of our sin, we won't do it. But Jesus' counsel to us is don't sin. <laughs> the, the less we sin, the better it will go for us. This is the beauty of God's law. It is not a, an anvil pulling us down underwater, right? The, the more we keep it, the more we obey it, the better experientially our lives will be, right? Of course, now when we don't, there is grace, there's forgiveness, right? This is the good news, right? But nonetheless, Jesus' counsel, sin no more. Two final points of application really quick, and I'm done. Number one, I've already kind of said it, learn to see sin for what it is. Learn to, to see it, to, to hate it, to see how ugly it is, right? To how evil and miserable and lawless it is. And as we look upon this passage and kind of consider how it comes to, to bear on our lives, we should, uh, cause us, this, this should cause us to hate sin even more. We see that, this, that sin has caused this man to suffer for 38 years, right? It should cause us to hate sin even more. And secondly, and lastly, let us learn to be repentant. Let us be quick, quick to repent of our sin, 
to see the beauty of Christ and to turn to him. Yes, we will make mistakes, and when we do, that is when we look and see Christ's radical compassion, significantly, or specifically, his, his death and his resurrection, how he, on the cross, fully conquered all of the death and brokenness for us. And by the grace of God, our lives will change. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much, that you love us perfectly. We thank you that you came to the pool where we were laying broken one day, and you called us, you saw us, you came to us, and you called us to follow you. Indeed, even now, for all of us here, you're calling us to once again to to look to you, to see you, to follow you. Please help us to do this. Please help us to hate sin. And that's hard because sometimes sin is, is fun and it can be easy to live in it. But Lord, help us to hate it. Help us to turn from it, to flee from it, to walk and follow you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for your love for us, for your forgiveness of all the times that we do sin. We pray all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.